It's entitled, Come, Let Us Return Unto the Lord. Brother Cyril Tennant. My dear brethren and sisters, we noted at the outset of our study that Hosea is remarkable in the use of names. We also said, you remember, that he makes great use of places and the association of place names. Now, just as an exercise to back this up, we're going to look at chapter 4 and verse 15. Though thou, Israel, play the harlot, yet let not Judah offend, and come not ye unto Gilgal, neither go ye up to Beth-Avon, nor swear the Lord liveth. Now, why should Gilgal be singled out here and used in this poetic sense? Let's go back into Joshua now. Joshua chapter 4. Gilgal does, in fact, make a most remarkable uh, place study, but very briefly, you'll notice in chapter 4, we have the crossing of the Jordan and the entering of the land, and you'll notice in verse 19, the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. Now, prior to entering into Gilgal, they had passed through the river Jordan, and you'll notice they took twelve stones out of the river, and with those twelve stones they built an altar in Gilgal. What is not usually noticed is that they also set twelve stones up in Jordan. Verse 9, Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan. So what we have in actual fact is the twelve chosen men carrying twelve stones into the midst of Jordan, and they're setting them down, picking up twelve stones out of the midst of Jordan, taking those through, and with those building an altar. And we have in that a most perfect type of baptism, in that the old man, the old stones taken from the other side of Jordan were left in the river, the new stones taken out of Jordan were used, and those were used to make an altar. The new man in Christ, as it were, comes out from these waters of baptism. Passing on into chapter 5, we read of their rolling away of their iniquity at Gilgal, where in fact we have circumcision practiced on a generation of people who had not been circumcised because each of their fathers, those who had been circumcised, had died in the wilderness. Now we have a new generation, a new generation born again, as it were, passing through the Jordan and in their being circumcised. In verse 10, we have the first Passover being kept after they came out of Egypt. And in verse 13 to verse 15, we have a rather interesting account of Joshua meeting an angel. Verse 13 says, He met this man with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And obviously the answer he expected to receive was, I'm on your side. That was not the answer he received at all. It was, in fact, verse 14, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I come. In other words, Joshua, if you are on the Lord's side, you are on our side. If you are not, you are not. And that was a very singular lesson to Joshua that he had to remember and was told in verse 15 to loose his shoes from off his feet because the place on which he stood was holy ground. 
When we turn over into Judges chapter 2, just a little reference, which says, An angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. And so you see, the associations we have with Gilgal are all associations of the rebirth of this new generation which had come now out of the wilderness, been born again, baptized in the river Jordan, as it were, been circumcised and their reproaches rolled away from them. They have kept the Passover, indicating this rebirth and the grace of God. They have been shown that God is in their midst and they must be on his side. They're reminded in Judges chapter 2 that this Lord, this angel, has come up from Gilgal. When we go back then into Hosea, we have in verse 15 this simple reference, come ye not to Gilgal, because Gilgal was obviously a very holy place, a place which had very special memories for the people. But you'll notice that this mattered very little to this generation. All that was sacred, all that was to be respected, was in fact trampled beneath their feet. Bethel had become Beth-Avon, as we see also in verse 15. We have therefore, as it were, built into this verse 15, a very powerful word of exhortation, one which is needed for this age in which we live, because we are living in an age where nothing is regarded as being sacred. When all the things which normally and used to command our respect are being trampled beneath the feet of a rising generation, we find that employees will talk on first-name terms with their employers, as in fact they did last night on the stage here. There was a time when there was a respect, when employees referred to their employers as Mr. And although that is not very important in itself, it does show that there is a respect and that there is a difference. There is also that erosion between people and governments. In our country particularly, we find that the weak are saying, I am strong, and in this there is a fulfillment of prophecy. But we're also finding that there is this erosion of things which are important in ecclesial matters. That ecclesial halls are being desecrated and used for all kinds of functions, social functions. That all kinds of things are being introduced into ecclesial life which are eroding what ought to be a respect for the things of God. And here in this verse 15, we're being reminded of that, that if we're on the Lord's side, then things will be well. If we are not on the Lord's side, things will not be well. We shall suffer for it. We have also shown uh, in verse 17 that we shall either be joined unto the Lord or we shall be joined unto idols. We cannot be joined unto both. We repeat something that I said a little earlier here so that we can make sure we understand this principle. We are part of the body of Christ. Members in particular. This was said of those who possess spirit gifts, of course, in Corinthians, but it is also true of ourselves. We are members of the body of Christ and he is the head. We cannot therefore go and join ourselves unto an harlot and still be a member of the body of Christ. 
because that would make Christ joined unto an harlot. The principle is very simple, very sure. If we join ourselves unto idols or to a harlot, to use the figure of Hosea, then we are separating ourselves from the body of Christ. We will choose for ourselves, therefore, our own destiny. Verse 19, The wind hath bound her up in her wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. I'm not going to develop this, but I would ask you to make a note, in fact, of Zechariah chapter 5, verses 5 to 11, and you will see that there is a parallel uh, in the two references. And this does, in some senses, help us to understand what is meant in Zechariah chapter 5. But now we're going to turn into Hosea chapter 5, and you will note that we are only up to chapter 5, and today is Wednesday, so we shall have to move along a little more quickly. A very simple summary of chapter 5 is that we have the rebellion of the children of Israel outlined. We have the remedial action of God revealed to us. And then at the end of the chapter, we have God withdrawing himself until they acknowledge their offences. We're going to look at the chapter now to see how this chapter pinpoints some of the rebellious state of mind of the children of Israel. Remember the simple structure of the book, a series of arcs, as it were, each reaching out to the kingdom of God, each beginning with some particular aspect. Well, here in chapter 5, we begin with this rebellious nature of the children of Israel, and we deal with this somewhat fully in this chapter, uh, and with God's remedial action towards it, before we have a glimpse later uh, of the kingdom of God. It is only a glimpse, because he says in verse 15, I will go and return to my place, till they acknowledge their offence. In other words, until the time comes when the kingdom of God will be established. Their rebellion. Verse 1. Hear ye this, O ye priests, and hearken ye, house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. Notice that it is king, priest, and people. It is everybody in the land who are responsible for wickedness, who are rebelling. The whole ten-tribe kingdom is in a state of rebellion. Give ear, O house of the king, for judgment is toward you, because ye have become a snare upon Mizpah. Mizpah means watchtower. And what ought to have been a watchtower in the midst of Egypt and in the midst of Israel has in fact become a snare. Follow that through in an exhortational sense. You know, every one of these verses could be developed almost into a full exhortation. A snare in the watchtower. Imagine your arranging brethren who are responsible for the smooth running of your ecclesia, who are responsible for discipline, who are responsible for your Bible class programs. Imagine them becoming a snare and leading you in the wrong direction by teaching you to do the wrong things. And of course this does happen. This does happen. Our arranging brethren do allow things to happen occasionally in our ecclesias which ought not to happen. They are in doing this a snare upon Mizpah. And this is our responsibility. If we have selected the kind of arranging brethren that we want, then we shall get what they will give to us. 
If we have selected the kind of arranging brethren we ought to have, then we should be guided properly by the Spirit of the Lord and by his teaching. These people here had turned their priests until their priests became like themselves. And it is possible for us to produce arranging brethren in our own likeness, and as such we should suffer for it. A snare upon Mizpah and a net upon Tabor. Tabor means high place. And so here they have a net, a snare in the watchtower. They have a net in the high place. They are being tripped up in the very places where they ought to be finding respect, where they ought to be finding godliness. Verse 2, they are revolters. They are profound to make slaughter. You notice how here in this verse, the prophet summarizes the whole character of the nation by calling them revolters. And we remember how the nation started. It started in revolt. It started by the ten tribes revolting against the kingdom of God, against the two tribes. The spirit of division which started there being two kingdoms in the land was a spirit which then continued to erode the ten tribes themselves. Now, can we underline this, that division is by its very nature divisive, that it continues to eat away as doth a canker, that if we start a new ecclesia on the basis of division, division will continue within that new ecclesia and we shall still have problems. That if we have some particular problem in an ecclesia and we divide that ecclesia because there is a division of mind, then that spirit of divisiveness will go with that new ecclesia and it will still divide and divide until it is devoured. And that is precisely what happens here with the nation of Israel. The spirit of divisiveness uh, does in fact devour them. And so, verse 2, the revolters are profound to make slaughter even though God had been a rebuker of them all. Let us remember, therefore, the spirit of division is something which will ultimately divide us, will eat us away. We must be constructive and not divisive. Verse 4. The middle of the verse, they are described as having the spirit of whoredoms. It's a very interesting exercise when thinking in terms of the Holy Spirit, to get back to the basic meaning of the word spirit. And we find that the word spirit really means the essence of life. When, therefore, we are reading of the spirit of man, we read of the spirit of man as being the spirit of greed, the spirit of jealousy, the spirit of whoredoms as here. In other words, the very essence of human life is human, it is mortal, it is corrupt. And all these things are revealed as being the essence of human life. When we speak of the life of God, the spirit of God, we read of a holy spirit, the spirit of grace, the spirit of love, the spirit of unity, all these things reveal what is the character of God. And so again, the word spirit reveals the essence of God's way of life. And the whole purpose of the gospel is to lift a man from the spirit of mortality into the spirit of God. 
to make man holy like himself, that we might become partakers of his nature. And all the arguments about the Holy Spirit gifts are really quite irrelevant. The most important thing is the nature and quality of the character of God and that we shall be transformed into that image, into that likeness, ultimately, by his mercy. Verse 7, they are treacherous. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have begotten strange children. Although Gomer is not mentioned here, we have to take this as being read, we have to remember that they acted, the real life acted parable of Hosea and Gomer is the basis of what the prophet is telling us. And here we see the strange children begotten, the two children begotten, Lo Amai and uh, Lo Ruama, begotten out of adultery, uh, being used now of Israel, begetting themselves strange children. In other words, bringing up another generation which knoweth not the Lord, a generation which will have to be destroyed by God and which will perish in its wickedness. They have dealt treacherously. They should have been married to God. They were not. They sought associations with other husbands. They should have been members of the body of Christ to bring the exhortation home, but instead they were not. They had joined themselves unto idols. Verse 10 the rebellion also led them into removing the bound. Removing the bound. Turn with me to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Where we read in verse 8. He that diggeth a pit shall fall into it. Whoso breaketh an hedge, a serpent shall bite him. In other words, if we go to break down the bounds, go to break down the hedges, which uh, not only are a division of our own land, but are also a division of someone else's, we shall be bitten by a serpent. But apply this in the scriptural sense, in the spiritual sense. That where we tamper with the parameters of our faith, where we tamper with the essentials of the truth, where we are not just and true with the fundamentals of our faith, we take away the essence of salvation. We shall be bitten by the serpent of sin and we shall die. Whoso removeth a hedge shall be bitten by a serpent. And so tampering with, the funda tampering with the fundamentals of our faith is a most dangerous thing. And here the children of Israel had removed their landmarks. They had removed their bounds. Their priests were like unto themselves. Their kings they murdered. And of course they were committing adultery and lewdness amongst themselves. Verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment, because he willingly walked after the commandment. Remember Jeroboam said, These be thy gods, O Israel, and they willingly walked after the commandment and served those gods. 
There is a point here we must bear in mind, and that is, there is a very real difference between sins which are committed through weakness and sins which are committed willingly or willfully. For willful persistence in wrongdoing, there is no forgiveness. They that tread the blood of Christ, wherewith they were sanctified beneath their feet, will find there is no further forgiveness. But there is always forgiveness for transgression which is committed through weakness. And this is something we must remember. Particularly as we are covering Hosea, which talks about the problems of marriage and marriage relationships. There is no sin beyond the power of God to forgive it. Unless there is a willful persistence in wrongdoing. And then there can be no forgiveness because we put ourselves outside the realm of God's salvation. Now let's look at the chapter and see what is God's remedial action uh, with Israel. Verse 9. The end of the verse says, I made known that which shall surely be. God had revealed his way to the children of Israel and they were absolutely without excuse. Romans chapter 1, since we're reading, since we were looking at this a little earlier rather, Romans chapter 1, Notice what the Apostle Paul has to say to us here in verse 20. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they were without excuse. They are without excuse. And then he says, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Having laid this foundation in Romans chapter 1, that they knew God, that they were without excuse, he then goes on to point out the extremity of his judgment poured out upon them, as you remember in the three times usage of the expression, God also gave them up. It is in that sense then that we come back into Hosea that God made his principles clearly known unto Israel, and they were without excuse. I want you for a moment to see the impact of this, to think in terms of business. The board of directors will meet together at the beginning of the year, and they will consider the coming financial year. And they will produce a budget. They do not know what is going to happen in that coming year, but they must make what they think is an educated guess. They must allow for contingencies. They don't know, but they're going to make decisions. And they will say, if this happens, if this happens, if that happens in accordance with this, then these will be the results, and this is going to be our future. This is going to be our profits. And they make their decisions on very scanty information. If there is a prolonged strike in the industry, then all those calculations are wrong. A recalculation has to be formed. A new budget has to be made, an emergency one, during the year. But they work upon such scanty information. We, so far as the truth is concerned, 
have been told by God precisely what will happen. God has said to us precisely, if we are obedient to him, what we shall enjoy. And the picture of the kingdom of God is painted in full glowing colors. He has also told us precisely what will happen if we don't follow him. If we take ourselves from Christ and become members of an idol or a harlot, he has told us what will happen in frightful terms. The judgments of God will be poured out upon all those who are ungodly and the descriptions in the Bible are frightful. We are without excuse. And the remarkable thing is that men in business will work with their flimsy information and they will make their decisions to try to achieve a profit. But we who have been given all the information and know precisely what will happen, will so often choose to go in the wrong direction. And that is the most remarkable thing about human nature. We are absolutely without excuse. And so God, in his first stage of his remedial action, makes absolutely certain that we know all the conditions. I made known that which shall surely be. And there's no doubt about it. The decision we make is entirely of our own responsibility. The next stage, verse 10. The princes of Judah were like them that removed the bound. Therefore will I pour out my wrath upon them like water or like a flood. Now we may think for a moment that this is just pure retributive judgment. In actual fact, it is not, because you will think of the flood in the days of Noah, and the flood did two things. It represented the day of vengeance, it represented the day of the Lord our God. It destroyed the wicked, but it saved the righteous. It selected from the world of that day a new family to produce a new generation. And so God would pour out his wrath upon them like a flood, which would in itself purge the children of Israel, would itself produce a remnant which would be responsible for a new generation. Now the pouring out of that wrath is explained to us in two further stages which follow. Verse 12. Therefore will I be unto Ephraim as a moth, and unto the house of Judah as rottenness. And later, verse 14, I will be unto Ephraim as a lion. Two stages, because first of all, there is the gentle erosion of the nation of Israel, the silent decay which is represented by the damage caused by a moth. If they were to heed this and see that their nation was shrinking, that they were being consumed as by a moth, then that in itself would be remedial, they would repent, and God would heal them. But because they didn't heed the signs of this silent decay, this shrinking of the nation, then there had to come this more vigorous discipline, which was as of a lion. I will tear and go away, I will take away, and none shall rescue him. And so we had the people, the nation of Israel, being taken into captivity, their ferocious enemies here being likened unto the lion which would tear and which would take them. And notice now, God says, I will go away and I will return unto my place. 
before we look at that last verse, can we just examine Israel's reaction to God's remedial action amongst them? Verse 13. Ephraim has a moth, the house of Judah has rottenness, the decay has started. They ought to have turned to God, but what did they do? When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and sent to King Jareb. They did not go to God to seek help. They went back into the world to seek help from the world. They paid money to the king and he didn't help them. In fact, he robbed them even further and ultimately took them into captivity. The story here, in fact, might very well be the basis of Jesus' parable, parable of the prodigal son. When he began to be in want, he ought at that time to have said to himself, I've done the wrong thing, I'll go back home. But he didn't. He joined himself unto a citizen. And that citizen didn't help him either. In fact, that citizen didn't even give to him the husks which the swine ate. A very powerful lesson comes out to us here, brethren, sisters. That when we find ourselves in trouble, in adversity of one kind or another, what is our first reaction? Is it the insurance policy? Is it making sure we're in the boss's good terms that we might retain and keep our job? Do we compromise our standing in the truth to maintain our jobs? Because there are bad times coming and we must have money for the family. Do we turn to King Jareb in this way? Because if we do, we shall surely perish with these things. And yet this is natural. So natural that when we're in trouble, we turn automatically to some human form of help, only to find a broken reed crumbles and breaks in our hands. The prodigal son, in the parable which Jesus taught, learned his lesson ultimately. Side two. Because the man to whom he had gone and on whom he trusted didn't help him, because the famine became very fierce in the land, we are told he came to his senses. He came to his senses and went home to God and repented fully and was received and forgiven by his father. That is something which Israel did not do and therefore could not be helped by God at this stage. God and God alone was their healer, as is revealed time and time again throughout the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 1. He will heal us. He hath smitten and he will heal us. All the way through, we shall pick up these, verse seven, chapter 7, verse 1. When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered. It goes all the way through uh, Hosea that God was the healer, the saviour of the people and he was the one who was ignored. Suffering from some fatal disease, the remedy was there at their right hand and they did not take it. Instead, they went in the wrong direction. Verse 
7, is it? No, we're looking at verse 6. Then they shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He hath withdrawn himself from them. This reference of going with flocks and herds to seek the Lord, rather interesting. You turn with me uh, into the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, the very first chapter. You know the situation throughout this very lovely story of the lovemaking of the couple throughout the Song of Solomon and how true to life they seem to keep missing each other and longing to find each other and to be with each other. And we have in verse 7, Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? In other words, she's saying, where can I find you? And in this, we have the um, exhortation, where can we find Christ? Where can we find God in our own lives? The answer, if thou knowest not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock, and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tent, you have to think about this to see what he's saying. If you want to find the shepherd, then go and feed your sheep where he feeds his sheep. Now think of the importance of that. If we want to find Christ, we do not do it intellectually by reading the word of God and by studying the word of God alone. We must do that. This is our handbook, our textbook. But this is only the beginning. If we really want to find Christ, we must go and labor where Christ labors. We must go and work where Christ works. And it is in service to him and with him that we shall ultimately find him. We turn through now to uh, the Gospel of uh, John, John chapter 12, where this very point is made by Jesus himself. John chapter 12. And verse 26. Well, starting earlier, verse 21. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. And so we have certain people of the Greeks who want to see Jesus. And they go to Jesus and tell him this. And what does Jesus say? Verse 26, if any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. We do not find Christ by attending meetings. We do not find Christ at Bible camps. 
Here we share our experiences. Here we teach each other to look in the right direction. But we shall only find Christ if when we go from this place, we involve ourselves in his service. And we become involved in doing what he does, he did, when he was here amongst men and is still doing through his children. It is only in service that we shall find God and be known of God. Back into Hosea chapter 5. And what do we read in that verse 6? But they shall not find him. They have come now in verse 6 to do the very thing which they were commanded to do earlier, to go with their flocks and to feed them with the shepherd, the true shepherd. But it's now too late. This is the very basis of the story of the five foolish virgins who, when they wanted to get oil, it was too late. And, brethren and sisters, it is a fallacy to think that we can always turn back to God, that we can do what we want to do now and come a week or so later, a year or so later, we will then settle down and we will then serve God. It is a fallacy to think that we can do that for two reasons. Firstly, because the day of the Lord will come as a thief, and it will then be too late. But secondly, and this perhaps is more important, it is possible to go so far down the wrong road that there is no way of return. It is possible for us to go so far down the wrong road that we cannot redress our steps. It is possible to break away from the body of Christ and be joined unto an idol. And there is no coming back. If we meddle with the hedge, if we meddle with the boundary, the bounds of our salvation, we shall be bitten by a serpent. In other words, we are being told here that there must be dedication. We must really want the kingdom of God. We must regard the things of this world as being transient. We must see the glitter and sparkle of this world as being nothing more than a mere bubble which when we take hold of it, it bursts and leaves just damp, clammy despair in our hands. That is what the world is, and we must see this for ourselves. It will be too late if we don't. And in the end of the chapter, verse 15, God says, I will go and return unto my place until they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction they will seek me early. But it was not that generation which sought the Lord. That generation perished in captivity. It was a new generation which came out of captivity. And that generation also perished and so did subsequent ones. The generation which will seek the Lord will be the remnant out of all twelve tribes and which will include, as the Apostle Paul says, the Gentiles, born out of tribulation, a new nation which has desired to be like God, like their shepherd, who has fed their own flocks where he feeds his, where they have come to know him and be known of him. In their affliction they will seek me early. There is a reference we ought to look at, I think, in 
Exodus chapter 20, Ezekiel chapter 20, I'm sorry, which uh, paints this dreadful picture of the children of Israel being left dreadfully alone without God in the world. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you. I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out from the countries wherein ye are scattered. With a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there will I plead with you face to face like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness in the land of Egypt. Remember chapter 2, how it was the door of hope, Achor, the valley of trouble, which would open as a door of hope. Here we have some of the details filled in. This is the wilderness into which Israel was to be driven. This is the wilderness where God would speak face to face with his people, would reach their heart, and where ultimately they would listen to him. But this is a dreadful picture of tribulation to be suffered by the children of Israel. And so verse 15 of Hosea chapter 5 takes us right into that time of the final sufferings of his people when ultimately they will see the wounds in his hands and they will repent for what has been done. Now, chapter 6 is a most refreshing chapter. It comes in after that distressing picture of the children of Israel in their affliction, where it has been too late for them to do anything about it. But chapter 6 is really a word of exhortation which Hosea is giving to the people. What he's saying, in effect, is you have seen what happened to Gomer You've seen how I bought Gomer back, how she is now reinstated. He is now exhorting the nation of Israel to come back unto the Lord before it is too late. And so warnings, words of warning, dreadful words of warning, are always words of hope. Because they do give to us the opportunity to repent. But I'm not thinking in chapter 6 now of God speaking to Israel. I'm thinking in chapter 6 of God speaking to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here in verse 1, we see, as it were, all the troubles of Israel, all the problems of wayward Israel, all gathered together, and we hear not the voice of Hosea, but the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. And we are taken immediately into Isaiah 53. He was bruised for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. A most searching chapter to read. A wonderful exercise in Bible reading and in exhortation. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. And in this first verse, we are being appealed to by the Lord Jesus Christ to come unto him, to be joined in with him, that we might 
find that all our sins and all our iniquities are placed upon his shoulders and nailed to his cross, that in his smiting we might be healed. After two days, the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. This is a prophecy of our resurrection with Christ. Showing us, in fact, the Apostle Paul says, that as we go down into the waters of baptism, all our sins are nailed to his cross. As we come out of the waters of baptism, we are raised with Christ. And so this reference here to the third day, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a reference to our being raised again in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord. Notice the Lord is in large capitals here in verse 1. So we have Jesus saying to us, Come, let us return unto Yahweh, unto God who is our Saviour, God out of whom springs all our hope, and of whom the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is the representative. He is the one who reveals to us what God is like. And he is the one who brings to us that salvation of which God, Yahweh, spoke. And so God, is, Jesus is saying, come, let us return unto him. Verse 3, then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, we shall know God in a real and in a true sense, if we join ourselves unto the Lord Jesus Christ. This, of course, is the spirit of Christ in the prophets, which is referred to by the Apostle Peter, which has something else to say about that uh, at a more appropriate time in the message of Hosea. But all the experiences of Israel, all the experiences of Gentiles gathered together in Christ here and in his crucifixion, and there is this wonderful hope for those who return and for those who seek to know and who follow on to know. Verse 3 is a verse of certainty. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning. He shall come down unto us as the rain, as the latter, and as the former rain unto the earth. And how dearly I would love to go into the book of Joel at this moment to expand a little on verse 3 about the former and the latter rain, but we haven't really got the time to do that. We have also in chapter 6 a further analysis of Israel's sins. Now these keep coming. Every section deals with some particular detail in the life of the nation of Israel. Some particular sins are brought to light and some particular sins are analyzed before us. Verse 4. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee for your goodness? is as a morning cloud, as the early dew it goeth away. There is nothing more lovely to see than the early morning dew, sparkling in the bright early morning sunlight. But how transient it is. No sooner has the sun risen than the, the dew itself disappears. All its beauty has gone, all those Wonderful shades of colour as the light is split up by the prismatic effect of the dew upon uh, the leaves. All disappears and we are left with nothing. The brilliance of the light has gone. And here Israel 
Ephraim, the ten tribes, is likened unto Jew. All the early promise. The nation of Israel, and notice we have here Ephraim and Judah. We have the twelve tribes joined together. All the early promise of the twelve tribe kingdom, which shone with the brightness and the glory of the early morning Jew, was like the early morning Jew, which was in fact too transient and disappeared. It didn't last. And how we must contrast that, and will contrast it a little later, in chapter 14, where God says, I will be as the Jew to Israel. And there is something very different which comes out of that. Verse 6. Another part of their sins. I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Now, Jesus is not, rather, God is not saying here, I didn't want you to offer sacrifices. He is not setting mercy and sacrifices in opposition to each other. What he's saying is that he wanted there to be mercy in the offering of their sacrifices. If we go to Malachi, which we won't physically, but we will mentally, if we go to Malachi, we read that they robbed God in the offering of their sacrifices. And that is a very frightening thought that as they went to worship God and to take their sacrifices, they were actually robbing God. And that means that we, as we come to worship God at the breaking of bread service, can also be guilty of robbing God. And how can that be? It can be because we do not see the mercy behind the ritual. Because we do not see the life behind the things which we are doing and have been commanded to do. When they offered a sacrifice, they were not just to slay an animal. In effect, they were slaying, they were murdering the beasts. And as the blood flowed, they were delighting in making their sacrifices. And they would make more and more animals to offer to sacrifice. But there was no thought that God had given to them the blood of the animal to make an atonement for their sins. There was no thought of the mercy of God in the sacrifice which they were offering. God says, I desired mercy, not sacrifice. I wanted you to understand my own life, my own character, and exhibit that same life and character yourselves in your own lives in the way that you live. And you didn't do it. Instead, you carried out the ritual, but you lived the life of Baal instead. What a condemnation that is in verse 6. Gilead, verse 8, the city of them that work iniquity. Gilead was the city of balm, the city of healing. What we're being told in verse 8 is that Gilead, the city of healing, has become a city of iniquity. And all the healing has become polluted with blood. Can you imagine all the antiseptics and the antibodies in the hospital which are used for the healing of people themselves being corrupted so that they can no longer be used? That is the sort of figure we've got here. All the healing processes that God had given to Israel have been polluted, have been corrupted, and therefore they cannot be healed. And you see how important it is that we retain the first principles of our faith and we understand the truth 
as it has been given to us. And we do not allow any rising generation to tamper with it and to change it. Because as we change the principles of the truth, so we destroy the healing properties of the truth that God has given to us. Gilead is a city of them that work iniquity and is polluted with blood. Verse 9, their priests who are deprived of their living because they are no longer given the portion that is the food of God, they themselves have to use violence to live. As troops of robbers, they wait for a man. So company of priests murder in the way by consent, for they commit lewdness. The priests have become corrupted themselves in order to live, because Israel have made it that way. And we have this dreadful verse, verse 10. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the whoredom of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. A people called to be the custodians of the word of God. A people called by God to be a kingdom of priests. A people called in figure throughout Hosea to be the wife of God. They have become corrupted. It is a horrible thing in the house of Israel that Israel is defiled. The very fountain and source of God's grace and goodness not just to Israel, but could have been to the world, because they would have been a kingdom of priests, was corrupted and made useless. Brethren and sisters, we have a most precious inheritance. The truth that it has been delivered to us is a most precious thing which brings to us salvation, but we are also custodians of the word of God, and it is a horrible thing to see that our custodianship turns into a corruption of that which ought to be our salvation.